Welcome back to 43rd and Woodland. Today, we'd like to discuss the second part of the series, The Bane of Everyone's Existence, Finances. As you heard from our last podcast, we sat down with Fiona who shared her incredible story and truly showed us the importance of personal finance. But now, we'd like to transition on how to effectively approach personal finances as we sit down with my best friend, Brent Greenlee, who will provide his tips of success on this matter. To note, Brent is not a financial advisor and is not being compensated for the advice that he'll be giving. Personal finance is not a one-size-fits-all subject, and he will not be prescribing specific plans for individuals. Rather, he'll be sharing general overviews and philosophies that should help everyone understand what are generally good practices and what things to avoid. His advice is coming from his knowledge gained through academic studies, experience within the financial industry, and most importantly, as a person who is passionate about personal finance. With that, Brent, thank you so much again for joining us on our podcast. All right. So as noted, I am Brent Greenlee. I uh, graduated from Rutgers University with a bachelor's in economics and political science, after which I went to work in the financial industry in New York City. Uh, I've held three positions since then. First, as a credit analyst for S&P. Second, as an investment banker for Wells Fargo. And now I currently work for a global fashion company in their corporate finance division. So I'm very happy to be here, guys. Cool. Thanks for that intro, Brent. So to just start us off, can you give us a little insight into your passion for personal finance and why you've agreed to come on to this show and and tell us about it today? Yeah, absolutely. My passion for personal finance really stems from the fact that it's something that everyone has to deal with in their life, uh, but yet not many people know the rules of the road and, and really how to go about dealing with it. I think it's something that you guys as healthcare professionals can really understand. To me, it's very similar to your mental and physical health in the sense that everyone has this burden of, of having to deal with this their entire lives and, and how they go about doing so can make huge impacts on their quality of life in the long run. And so sharing that information with people is, is something I'm always willing to do because it, it has such a huge impact on those that I, you know, help along with it, uh, you know, just in the same way that, you know, sharing advice about your health does. You know, the other thing I like to always say when, when asked about this is that you know, although I have a lot of experience within the financial industry and, I, you know, I've, I've gone through academic studies, obviously, with, um, you know, with my economics degree, personal finance is not something that needs to be complicated. It, it usually is not complicated at all. Um, and, and once you you can kind of explain it to people and really lay it out to them, it, it makes clear sense. People get nervous, I think, a lot of the time because there are some concepts in finance that take a lot of rigorous study and are very convoluted and don't make much sense on the surface until you get behind the mathematics of it. But personal finance really is not one of those subjects and anyone can understand it. And I hope, you know, to relay a lot of good information here today. And I think it'll be pretty clear to people. Cool. Yeah, Brent, I really agree. And I, I think just a note um, to our listeners out there, Brent has really shared with me um, a lot of advice uh, throughout, even when I was a student now jumping into my career and and something we talked about is dealing with extremely high student loans, uh, something that I um, personally um, have right now, especially just coming out of school. And so, Brent, could you share um, some insights on how someone coming out of school or any professional career having all these student loans and the approach of really just paying them back? Save us, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, please. So the advice I always give people with student loans, I, I mean, first, I guess to just to back up, if we're going to hit a cliche, but a, a true cliche at that is that, you know, most people come out of college having significant student loans, you know, and I know, especially in the healthcare professions, uh, that can be significantly higher than some of your peers who didn't spend as much time in school. Uh, But you really shouldn't panic. Uh, I know it's easy to say when you're not looking at it, but 
you, you really need to treat it just like anything else in your life. It, it's going to be a task, uh, you know, and if you have the right plan to go through it, you you will get through it and you know, it's not going to ruin your life. Uh, so I've heard so many people, you know, make so many exclamations like I just can't even fathom how I'm going to pay back 200, 300,000, whatever it is. And for that reason, they really don't go about making a solid plan because they're almost too afraid to even uncover what lies behind all that debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing is shake off your fear. It's going to be fine. Make a plan and I'll, I'll help you a little bit here with some of this advice to do that. <laughs> so the first thing to do is to get a complete list of all the loans that you have from all of the different providers that you've taken loans out with. Uh, the two types are private and public. So you've either taken loans out through the federal government or you've had uh, private loans. Most likely, if you have any loans at all, you, you probably have a combination of the two. So you're going to have to go to your mul- the multiple providers that have, have given you loans across your studies and, and, and get the, the full list, which, you know, in the modern age, very easy. It's online. Uh, they legally have to provide you with the information. So I, what you want to do with this is get an understanding of where you're at. You know, so like I said, some people don't even understand how much they, they owe, and that, that's a big problem. But what you're also looking for is the interest rates attached to each one of these loans. When you borrow money, all that's happening is that you're paying for the privilege to borrow that money. It doesn't come free. And this comes at the cost of an interest rate. I'm sure that you know, most of you understand this, but it is, it is a very important figure because essentially that money that you're borrowing is all the same. You know, a dollar is a dollar. But throughout the course of your academic studies, you borrow those dollars at varying rates. And the, and that matters a lot because that's what differentiates the loans between one another. If you have one loan at 10% and you have another loan at 5% of the same amount, you're paying twice as much to borrow that first loan. And that's what you really want to start to understand and what you want to look for when you get a detailed list of, of all the loans that you owe. Now, once you're out of grace period with these student loans, so which is typically six months after you graduate, the grace period being that time where interest will still accrue as long as it's an unsubsidized loan. We don't have to get into all of that, Mm -hmm. but interest will usually still accrue. However, you will not have, you are not required to pay anything. Once that six months grace period is over, you will be forced into repayment. And that's kind of what I want to talk about right now. Mm -hmm. So when lining up how to repay those loans, what you want to do is you want to push your minimum payments down to as low as you can possibly get them. You know, many different providers have many different ways of repaying, you know, so we can't go over all of the different ways you could do this. It depends on who you've taken loans out with. But the general rule is that you want to seek to have the lowest minimum payments. And usually that's, you know, doing it like the income based approach with the federal loans will we'll push it down rather than the steady, steady uh, payment across all months. Some private, uh, you know, providers give you options to defer repayment completely depending on the type of work that you've gone into. I know, you know, specifically I've talked to a number of students from U-Sciences who are able to defer based on doing a residency when they graduated and things of that nature. So you want to look into all of those programs and, and a lot of which are targeted towards healthcare professions. Um, so you could really, you know, benefit from them. Now... I am not going to go ahead and then tell you to only make those very low minimum payments. That is not the point here. Um, we're not trying to defer, but rather what this is going to allow you to do is to target your highest costing loans before the lowest costing loans. Now, the biggest problem 
that I see from well-intentioned people when they're trying to repay their loans is that they want to pay them all off as fast as possible. And they go about this by picking the plan that has the highest minimum payments because the website that you're looking at gives you the projection and says, oh, this will be paid off in eight years rather than 15 years or 20 years. But what that is telling you is what it will take you to pay it off once you, if you are only paying the minimum payments. And we're going to go into a little bit of how you should be allocating money for your loans in, in, you know, later on in the podcast. Uh, so we're not going to cover that right now. But you, as a rule, you should really always be paying higher than the minimum. So you want to ignore those. What I'm what I'm tailoring this around is that you have a set amount of money that you are putting aside to pay off your loans each time, but you want to force those minimums down to give yourself the most liberty in in how you're going to allocate that cash. So just to take you through an example, I, I want to explain why it's so important to target your highest interest rate loans before your lowest interest rate ones. So let's say you have two loans, both for $10,000. One has a 10% interest rate and the other has a 1% interest rate. Now you want and you, you're going to go make a payment on the beginning of the year on both of them. And let's say you have $10,000 to make that payment. If you split it evenly between the loans, $5,000 for each of them, at the end of the year, you will be left with a $5,000 loan accruing interest at a 10% rate. That means you would have a $5,000 loan plus $500 in interest. So $5,500 in total. Now, and then the other $5,000 loan will be at a 1% interest rate and will have accrued $50 for a total balance of $5,050. On the other hand, if you put all $10,000 towards the $10,000 loan with a 10% interest rate, the higher interest rate, then at the end of the year, you will be left with only one loan and that loan will have $10,000 that accrued interest at a 1% rate, which would then have a year end total of $10,100. So in this little example, if you split the money you had between the two loans, you end up owing $10,550 at the end of one year. But if you target the loan with the higher interest rate, you will owe just $10,100, saving yourself $450. All right. Now, this is an extremely simple <laughs> scenario. No one takes out money like this. Um, but the point is just to show you the concept in real numbers. If you can apply it to this scenario right here, you can apply it to your very diverse portfolio of student loans. And again, save yourself immense amount of money in the long run by targeting the highest costing loans. I mean, it, it just intuitively makes sense when you really get down to think about it. But again, the problem that I, I typically see people do, even very well-intentioned people, is spread their repayments across all of their loans not capitalizing on saving in the long run by taking out the ones that cost you the most first and saving the ones that cost you the least for your later payments. Yeah, cool. And so thinking about all of these things that we're talking about in the way that we're looking at repayment and approaching, you know, kind of getting out of that deferment period and actually having to, to pay back your, your loans, a lot of people will talk about consolidating or refinancing to, to kind of help the repayment process. Can you just shed some light on those options for us, how they fit within that repayment strategy we just we just started talking about? Right. Um, yeah. So consolidating and refinancing loans are two very separate topics. Uh, a lot of people get them confused just because it's they're two uh, you know major options for you. Once once you, you know you're out of that grace period, you're in the repayment, 
And so they often conflate and, and people think they're similar, but, the, but they're not. Uh, so first, let me go into consolidating loans. Consolidating loans is, is fairly straightforward. All that it usually entails is that your provider offers you a service where if you have taken out, let's say, 10 loans from Discover across the years that you were in school, they will offer you consolidation of those loans in which they will combine the principles together and any accrued interest that sits on them into a one lump loan. And then they will take the weighted average interest rate across the, the 10 loans and attach that to the new consolidated loan. And what this does essentially, it just makes it easier to look at and understand on the surface. So a lot of people get confused. They don't like looking at 10 different loans, have 10 different minimum payments. Some people want the benefit of having that information more streamlined. It's all together. They put their all their Discover loans together into one, and it has one interest rate. It will not change how much the loan costs you over the long run. Uh, if you were allocating your payments in a smooth fashion across the 10 loans, because when it consolidates, they attach the weighted average interest rate to it from the multiple loans. And therefore, it will cost you the same if you were to repay it with that smooth strategy. However, what not consolidating allows you to do is exactly what I've been uh, you know, harping on all this time already is target the highest interest rates first. So if you have a 10% loan, a 5% loan, and a 1% loan from Discover, and you consolidate them, and they just, just, let's say your weighted average interest rate would be around 6%, something like that, you then can no longer target the 10% one. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, we could put this out in the spreadsheet, you know, and show, show you. And, and what you would see is that if you took the targeted approach strategy with the breakup of the loans, your interest rate would come down over time as you took out the highest interest rate loan. It would drop significantly um, and then drop again as you started to take out the 5% loan, eventually hitting just 1% by the end when you're done, when you're repaying, <clears throat> excuse me, that final loan. Mm-hmm. However, with that, once you consolidate them all into one, you will be stuck with that 6% across the entire life of the loan. And so you would actually end up paying more in the long run than letting them be you know, non-consolidated and targeting the repayment as I've outlined before. Now, I will say the one benefit of the consolidation, and this might make sense to some people, if you really do just have a hard time looking at a lot of things at once, uh, you get daunted by the idea of having 12 different loans. But I really can't recommend that unless those interest rates are very similar to each other. And usually they're not because the reason you have so many loans is that you've taken them out at different times and of your academic studies, and so they're having they have different interest rates attached to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I really can't recommend consolidating because it makes you unable to take advantage of that targeted uh, repayment approach. So then that's consolidating, and then so if you want to talk about uh, refinancing student loans, refinancing student loans is definitely something that I uh, not only recommend but enthusiastically do so. <laughs> refinancing student loans, it, what happens is that. So say again, you have you know a number of loans from Discover, and you go to another financial institution and you you seek a, a refinancing of those Discover loans. What that other financial institution will do is pay off the entire amount or a portion if you only qualify for a portion amount of your loans outstanding with Discover, and then they will issue you a new loan. So I, the question is, why would you want just a new loan in place of the loan you had before? And the reasoning behind that is, is hopefully when you go to refinance, you are less of a risk 
than you previously were when you took out the loans from Discover in the first place. Therefore, the new financial institution will be able to offer you a lower interest rate since you are a lower risk to them. This typically happens, you know, when you're a junior, senior year, or as you guys say, like third, fourth year, whatever, in, um, in school, and you have mounting loans, you're over 100000 in student loan debt, and then you take out more loans, and now the, the financial institution, Discover, in my example, is making is taking all of this risk on you. There's there's all sorts of risks, like you, you won't get a job when you graduate, you won't, you maybe won't even graduate school, and then you're still on the hook for all these loans that you're taking out for the job you never received. All sorts of things, you're, you're an unproven credit risk, you're very young, you have little debt management history to your name. All of these things make you a great risk while you're in school. However, once you're out in the world and you do get uh, the job that you were shooting for, you have a nice salary, you've accumulated it for a few years, you've shown that you are employable and that you're not going to be fired at any moment, hopefully, then that new institution can say, you know what, you're 50% of the risk that you used to be when you took this out. Therefore, we will pay off the, your old loans and we will loan to you at an interest rate that is half that of your original loans. Mm. So this is obviously, this has an immense benefit to people. It mm. cuts the cost of your student loans significantly. However, the only downside is that you really do not qualify for it, at least in any meaningful way, for usually a couple years out of school. Once you're employed, you typically you kind of you know two three years is when you finally start to build a rapport of having a professional job, a, a good salary. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you can't constantly look into the option of refinancing your loans. There are plenty of online sites that you can go to. Um, you know, do your research, look around a little bit, free services that will look into your eligibility, you know, given you get a, you know, you'll put in a few data points, they'll look at your credit score, that kind of thing, and they'll see what kind of candidate you are for a, a student loan refinancing. So I encourage people to consistently look into this once they've graduated, once they've been in the workforce, understand that it might take some time, it's not going to cure your student loans overnight, uh, but in the, you know, in a, in a few years, you probably will qualify for some meaningful student loan interest rate reductions through student loan refinancing. So that is that is definitely something I would get behind. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely agree, Brian. I know that's something that we sh we talked about before. But I guess a quick question: Now with refinancing your loans, I mean, I know again, correct me if I'm wrong. I know with consolidating, kind of said like again, consolidate those ten loans. You're kind of stuck with that fixed interest after a while. How about with refinancing? Is there ways, for example, you you refinance with one company, say again, example, Discover, and then another company might refinance you at a better interest rate? Can you get out of contracts with refinancing between one place or another, or is it kind of you're stuck once you refinance at one place? Right. No, you can usually refinance multiple times. Um, mm -hmm. Now, you know, again, I don't this the financial industry is broad and diverse and there are usually contracts involved and, and things, you know, there's loan agreements. They might, you know, but but generally speaking, yes, like if you if you go to refinance after three years and then in, in 10 more years down the road, you want to refinance again because you're even less of a risk, then you can absolutely do that. Great. Yes. And, and so you're not. Yes, you're not locking. So you don't. It, that's right. Because the, the point good point here to make is that. Um, there's no, there's nothing really to be lost by consistently looking into your ability to refinance. Refinance as soon as you can get a meaningful reduction, because you can, you can get another, you know, down the road. It's not like mm -hmm. you have to wait for this optimal moment. Okay. As long as you can make your student loans cheaper, do it. You can always do it again. Yeah, that, that was a great question, Sean, because I, I didn't even know that you could do it more than once. And thinking about, you know, the way that Brent, you've kind of explained it, thinking about how much less of a risk you are 
further down the line, depending on how long you've been employed or what your salary looks like, how much of your loan you've already paid down. Um, right. All of those are super helpful points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. And then I guess it's perfect to jump into our next question here that I had for you is that you kind of already covered, I mean, managing your student loans. And could you just tell us a bit more about good spending habits? What are some good ways that, again, allocating that money and what to do moving forward? Right. No, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's kind of the question that everything has to be leading to, right? Because you can't talk about all these strategies and ways to handle your money and uh, without literally talking about what, all right, so I get my paycheck. What should this go to? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, should I be putting 50% of it to my student loans? That would be awesome. Probably not realistic. Um, but so there is, and, and, and this is one of my favorite rules in personal finance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like any, any other rule, again, I know we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but just to reiterate, this is not a one size fits all uh, philosophy, but this really will, if you follow this rule, it is a great rule of the road, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it is generally accepted personal finance advice by many people who are smarter than me. Yeah, you know, I personally <laughs> followed it and I, and I love doing so. It keeps me on track and I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So what I'm speaking about is what is called the 50-20-30 rule. And essentially it gives you the breakdown percentages for how you should be allocating your after-tax incomes. 50% of your after-tax income should be spent on necessities. 20% of your after-tax income should be spent on long, long-term long investments and savings. And then 30% of your after-tax income, you are allowed to do with as you please, the discretionary items, the fun stuff that you actually want to buy. So let's start, let's break it down category by category. Uh, so that first category, necessities, uh, a lot of people re- sometimes refer to this as fixed expenses. I, I just don't like the word fixed. It implies, you know, that all things are variable in the long run. Mm-hmm. I like to say necessities, but the reason they both work is that pe- people like to call it fixed because there's things that aren't quite necessities in the primal sense, but are in modern society, right? So you're paying your phone bill. That is a necessity under this this thought process. Basically, the way you know if you're falling into the necessities category, the fixed category, whatever you want to call it, is if you're not really drawing any joy from the purchase. It's something that you have to do. So this includes everything that you have to do to live in the modern world. Car payments, grocery expenses, rent, utilities are usually the big ones, but it also includes anything, you know, you got everything under the sun there, like Wi-Fi, all of that stuff that, you know, allows you to live as a modern human being, that stuff falls under necessities. And so what this tells you is that no more than half of your after-tax income should be going towards these types of things. And what you want to do, I mean, just to back up, I guess, a little bit, what you want to do when you, when I'm talking about this here is the advice I give to people. I, I keep a spreadsheet that details mm-hmm. every one of my expenses. And, I, you know, it's something I've shared with people. Like, I know I've yeah, shared that with I Sean. definitely recommend. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't have to be an Excel whiz to do it. You know, open up Excel, write it on paper if you want to. Uh, Excel is certainly easier, but um, put all of your, put these categories at the top, necessities. List everything out. Start with the highest one, usually rent, then go, you know, car down, all the way down to the lowest one, maybe a phone bill, and then add that all up. Now, if that is equating to more than 50% of your after tax income, then you have a problem. You are spending too much on one of those categories, and I doubt that you need to be doing that. So usually the biggest target is is rent and car payments and things of that nature. So what I like to do and how I like to treat this category is usually I'm trying to back into how much I can afford in rent, right? 
you know, Sean came to me. I remember when he was, you know, yeah. going and he was becoming a professional lad, <laughs> um, and he wanted to know, you know, like how do I know how much I can afford in rent when I moved to go work at my new job? Um, and so what I told him is that you want to back into this category. Things like utilities, phone bill, Wi-Fi, these are fixed. You're, they're basically going to be the same no matter what you're doing. And so you need to start subtracting those off of your category and then back into those large things. And usually what you're backing into is how much can I afford in rent? How much can I afford in a car payment? Those are the things that are going to tip you over this 50% category. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just, it's tough sometimes, but you have to deal with it. If you've backed into it and you've determined that you have $800 to spend on rent, then you, you really have to hold true to that because throwing off these categories will imbalance the rest of your spending. All right, so then moving into the second category is 20% for long-term savings and investment. Now, what's probably more pertinent to this podcast is not just calling it long-term savings and investments, but long-term savings investments and debt repayments. Yes. So this mm -hmm. category where loan repayment also comes into play because that these are loan repayment and investments are, are in the similar vein. They both are putting money away towards a, a long-term financial future that is more stable and secure for you. So what I tell people in this category is that first things first is what you are obligated to pay without having someone take you to court. And that is your loan minimums. Mm -hmm. You need to hit your minimum payments first before you can prioritize anything else in this category. But as you know from my previous questions that I've talked about, you should not just be paying that. So the second thing we will go into is actually not about loans, but it is actually about employer or government-sponsored retirement plans. Hmm. Now, what I mean by this, you want to you want to prioritize this immediately after what you're obligated to pay because these are the most lucrative savings plans that you will ever find. Most of the time, I mean, we can just talk about for an example, you have a 401k uh, offered through your private employer, and 401ks will usually have a situation where they'll match. 100% of your investment up to 5% of your salary. That's it's a typical 401k plan. So what that means is putting 5% up to 5% of your salary in this, you will immediately get a 100% return on your money. And then that is an incredible rate of return for anyone who understands anything about finance. Uh, you immediately double your money as your employer will match it. If you do not contribute, your employer will not match it and you leave all that money on the table. It is just it is irresponsible to not fully invest into your employer or government sponsored retirement program to its fullest potential. Mm -hmm. uh, you're always going to make more, more money there unless you have a loan with a 100% interest rate. That would be the only circumstance where it wouldn't make sense. And I don't think any, I hope nobody <laughs> is facing such a situation. Then from there, that is when you want to then focus back on you. So let's say you've hit your minimum payments, you have done 5%. Uh, you know, well, whatever, that's just our example. You've hit your government or employer sponsored retirement plan for it's what it's worth. Then from there, you want to then prioritize again, go back into your loans. And that's where you want to hit more than your minimum payments. And so this is where the advice kind of gets too dicey to fully dissect on a podcast such as this uh, in such a short time, I guess, you know, I can come back on and talk for like hours about this, but um <laughs> But really what you want to do is you'll usually find yourself after the minimum payments and then your your sponsored retirement plan, you'll usually find yourself with, I don't know, around 10% 10, 10 more or so to play around with this area, right? You, you've done the math, you've seen your minimum payments, 
and your, your, your retirement plan, let's say, you've done that math, you put it there, and that equals 15% of your after-tax income. But you want to hit 20% on this, at least. Mm -hmm. So that leaves you then with around 5% left to play around with. Now, usually, for people with extremely high student loans, such as usually the healthcare professionals coming out of school, that's where you want to take that 5% and put it to work, like I detailed uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in the beginning of the podcast with that strategy of repayment that I covered in depth. And, and you really want to focus on that. However, you do want to make some long-term investments for liquidity's sake if, if, if such a thing is required. And, that, and that's where it kind of gets a little dicey. Uh, but usually what I say is that if you have an immense amount of loans, we're talking uh, you know, over 100000 200000 uh, you have high interest rates, eight, nine, 10%, you know, someone like a profile of someone coming out of school in the first few years of school uh, coming out of school, you really want to prioritize all of that money into your loans because that stuff is really needs to be taken care of as soon as possible. And you want to do so in the, the way I've outlined uh, before. Mm-hmm. But the one caveat I will say is that if you are new out of school or perhaps you've never heard this advice before and you don't have such a fund set up for yourself, conventional Financial planning will tell you that you should first and foremost, with that 5% that I'm you know, using in my example, prioritize a six-month emergency savings account. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I mean by this is you want to take that first category of the necessities. What you want to do is you want to multiply that by six. That'll give you how much it costs you to live your necessities for six months. And you want to establish a savings account that equates to that amount of money for emergency situations only. Mm -hmm. And what you will use that money for are things like emergency medical bills, car payments, um, maybe a family member is is in dire need. Those things, the only reason you should ever draw from that emergency savings account, let's say you need need $1,000 to live every month, you've saved up an emergency savings account of $6,000, you stop there, you leave it, don't touch it unless you have an emergency, which you can draw from it, and then you will replenish it back to 6000 You will prioritize that before going back to hitting above your minimum payments. I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I will say as a caveat, one of the most common mistakes that I see people make, and it really frustrates me, is that they, are, they have too much, we call it liquidity. They have way too much liquidity, and all liquidity means is easily accessible money mm-hmm. In the short run. And that is usually a savings account. So people will come to me for advice and they will have things like $20,000 in a savings account. I always, and they will have loans at the same time. And I always tell them, I said, what do you think that you need $20,000 for at any moment? It's a ridiculous amount of money to keep on hand. Multiply your necessities by six. Keep a savings account of that amount of money and then do not contribute more. That is all you need. If you save too much money in a savings account, you will lose money because you are paying unnecessarily on loans that could have been taken care of if you hadn't put so much money away. Mm-hmm. You can be too conservative in personal finance, and that is a prime example of how people are often too conservative. Mm-hmm. And so even in I know that even in um, certain savings accounts, if you were to set them up in ones that aren't as um, high or, or whatever the word is in liquidity, um, Usually, if you have like a, a kind of dedicated savings bank, they'll actually accrue interest on the things that you're saving. So you are making more money uh, by saving that extra amount. Is that right? Yes. So typically, you ha- typically in a savings account. So, well, let me first. So you kind of had there was two questions embedded there. Number one is that this emergency fund 
should be a savings account and a savings account only. Again, this is blanket advice. This is generally accepted personal finance advice. It's good practice. You don't need to do it. But what I recommend is that this emergency fund is in a true savings account. Now, because you can get more earnings on less liquid savings vehicles, something like, let's say, a CD, a certificate of deposit, is often offered at a bank. What you do is you put your money away, say it's a 12-month CD, you, instead of earning 2% on your savings account, the CD pays you 4%, and you earn twice as much money, but now it's locked in for 12 months, and if you pull out within that 12-month period, you face large penalties that make the entire thing not worth it, and it, it's a negative to you. It's not only not worth it, but you will lose money right. uh, rather than if you had it in the same. The purpose of this emergency fund is to, no matter what the stock market does, no matter what the bond market does, no matter what the banks do, that you will have money on hand immediately available at the exact amount that you know it is so that you can cover emergency expenses. And so I cannot recommend that you use anything that is illiquid at all. It should mm -hmm. be simply a savings account, plain vanilla savings account mm -hmm. that you can pull out at any time. So that's, the, that's addressing the one, the one point you made. And then the right. second point that you made about, the, about interest rates attached to those savings accounts, mm -hmm. just like loans, Interest rates go both ways. They either earn you money or they cost you money. Most of the time, we've been talking about interest rates that cost you money with loans. But interest rates earn you money in the exact same way, just in the reverse. And so just like you want to target loans with the highest interest rate, you want to put your money where it will get you the highest interest rate because then you're earning instead of losing. So shop your savings accounts. You know, this is an emergency fund. Often when I get a checking account, I kind of just want the bank down the street. It's not going to have an interest rate anyway, or mm -hmm. it's so low, it doesn't even matter. And I want access. But if we're talking about an emergency fund that you, you, know, you don't need to have the ATM down the street, go ahead and shop the best savings account. You know, go ahead and put your money in there. But yeah, it, it'll earn you more than you know, if you do your local bank down the street that only offers you 1% on your savings account. The last topic that I really wanted to, to hit on is that, like I was saying, discretionary. Pretty simple. We don't need to spend too much time, but I'll just say, you know, you shouldn't be spending more than 30%. Uh, if you're over 30%, cut back on your bars and restaurants. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the main point that I really want to drive home here is that that middle category, long-term savings and investment, it is a minimum of 20%. So anything you can take out of the other two categories, if you can lower rent and you, you can get your necessities down to 40%, throw another 10% in the long-term savings and investment. And if you you know, don't need 30% of your income to have fun on the weekends, take that excess, maybe you only need 20%, throw another 10% into that long-term savings investment. That middle category, long-term savings investment, is a minimum 20%. And you want to take as much as you can while still living, living a, a quality life from the other two categories and put it into that middle one. Cool. All right. Uh, I think that, that that makes a good episode. I think that we're, uh, we're ready to, to wrap it up. Brent, thank you so much again for all the advice that you gave, all the information and the knowledge that you shared. Uh, hopefully, you know, like Sean and I have been uh, trying to push with this podcast, you know, it is it is alumni focused. Sean and I uh, are alumni of the university, um, but we really know that a lot of the information that gets shared across this podcast can be applicable to, to current students, even prospective students to some degree. You know, if you're thinking about coming to U Sciences or you're a current student at U Sciences, um, all of this information is here for you. Um, we're excited to share it with you and we're really grateful to our guests for, for being able to, to share a little bit of their knowledge with us. All right. Yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. Thanks no. for having me.
course. Yeah, and again, I mean, with all, with all the listeners out there, I really want to learn more. I mean, again, Brent, like you said, you can talk even just hours. It's on the 50-20-30 rule, anything more. Please let us know. Um, we would love to have, again, if, if the listeners, audience out there that love to learn more, again, from maybe um, maybe five years out of their career now, what do they think with a discretionary fund for retirement or or even, even again, putting into stocks or, or marriage, anything. I mean, Brent can really, really allude to that as well. So if you guys are interested, we could definitely have Brent. I think Brent would love to come back as well. So we would, again, if, you're, if our listeners out there would love to hear him again, please let us know. All right. Thanks a lot.